a lot about history and stories from the archives on the show, but we haven't really explored the story of the history of Emory's manuscript, archives, and rarebook library, or marble as we were once known. Today, we're going to hear how a bottle of bourbon, several chance encounters, and a pig roast contribute to the founding and building of what we now call Rose Library. Ron Schuhard has been with Emory's English department for decades and has been at the center of so many fortuitous moments of Rose Library's history. Join us as Ron and his former PhD student, Professor Anthony Kuda, travel back to Ron's first day as an assistant professor on Emory's campus to begin the story of how one special collections archive came to be. I'm your host, Lily Tarot, the Community Outreach Archivist at Emory University Libraries, Stuart A. Rose Manuscript Archives and Rare Book Library, and you are listening to Rose Library Presents Community Conversations. My name is Anthony Kuda. I'm professor of English at the University of North Carolina at Greensboro. I was a PhD student at Emory from 1999 to 2004, so I had the privilege to both research and work in special collections before it was the Rose Library, and also to write a dissertation under the direction of our guest today, Dr. Ronald Schuhard. Ron is the Goodrich C. White Professor of English and Irish Studies Emeritus at Emory University, where he taught for 43 years. He's the author of several prize-winning books on modern authors, such as T.S. Eliot and W.B. Yeats. He's co-editor of three volumes of The Collected Letters of W.B. Yeats, and general editor of the eight-volume Complete Prose of T.S. Eliot. As we'll talk about today, Ron is the founder of the Richard Elman Lectures in Modern Literature at Emory and of the T.S. Eliot International Summer School in London. He's now a senior research fellow in the Institute of English Studies at the University of London and a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. As you'll hear today, Ron is also a master storyteller. And because I've worked with him for many years now, first as a student and now as a colleague and co-editor, I've had the pleasure of hearing many stories about his decades of commitment to building the relationships behind the great manuscript and archive collections that have made Rose Library a world-class research destination. Ron, welcome. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Tony, for that generous introduction. Maybe we could start by um, talking about your earliest days at Emory and your memories of the Woodruff Library back then. You came to Emory in the late 60s, right? Yes, my first day on the Emory campus was September 1st, 1969, the very same day the Robert W. Woodruff Library opened. When I walked across the quadrangle as a newly hired assistant professor, fresh from completing my doctoral dissertation on T.S. Eliot in the Ransom Archives at the University of Texas, I witnessed the transport of cart after cart of books from the adjacent Candler Library into that wonderful new edifice. As I toured the stacks and special collections questioning libraries, librarians, I was transported myself. I felt that I was in the right place, divinely ordained, ready for me to, to begin teaching and researching 20th century English and Irish literature. The reality was that special collections contained nothing special in my field certainly no rare books and manuscripts, and the holdings in the general collection also were quite limited. In short, it was not yet a research library in the humanities. And you actually met the man for whom the library was named, Robert Woodruff, the, the former president of Coca-Cola, didn't you? Yes, indeed. Aside from the usual English department committees, I was randomly assigned to begin my university service not on a college academic committee, but on the University Campus Development Committee, at which Robert Woodruff was a frequent presence. I sat in awe of his ability to sit through meetings listening intently as a silent force to those who supported, supported or mostly opposed his request to build the Emory Medical Administration Building 
on the Ashbury corner of Clifton Road. At the end of the hearings, the chair asked for his response, and Woodruff took an unlit cigar out of his mouth and replied like a general, Damn the torpedoes, full speed ahead. (laughs) I got to know his personal motto, that there is no limit to what you can achieve or how far you can go if you don't mind who gets the credit. I took it as my own, and in retrospect, as I recount some moments and events of my personal experience with the library today, it became the motto of all those who collaborated selflessly in building this great research library over the next 40 years. All the presidents, provosts, deans, librarians, trustees, and faculty members who were collectively searching for manuscripts, archives, and rare books, loving every minute of it for the university without a thought of credit. I wish I could name them all. You've always talked about how important travel was in your early days at the university, Ron. Is this when the study abroad program began? Well, not quite. Emory did not then have any summer or junior year abroad programs for students when I arrived. Many of the best universities abroad, including Oxford and Cambridge, were not as yet open to them. But in 1973, the chair of the English department, Bob Hinman, succeeded in initiating a summer British studies program at the University of North Wales in Bangor, a program that during the next five years became in succession a movable feast at the University of London, St. Andrews University, and the small Manchester College at Oxford. It was a godsend for me to be included on the faculty as it afforded me six weeks in the UK each year, meeting scholars in my field and working in the UK archives. I also began meeting book dealers and attending book fairs to collect secondhand copies of books, mainly by or for Eliot and Yeats that Emory did not have and that I needed for my research and teaching. A developing friendship with the general editor of the Yeats Letters, John Kelly of St. John's College, Oxford, led to an invitation to become co-editor of that Oxford University Press project. With no significant Yates holdings in the Woodruff Library, I prepared myself for an interlibrary loan editorship Hmm. and and summer visits to significant Yates collections in the Ransom, the Huntington, and the Berg, and in summers at the British Library in London and the Brotherton Library in Leeds. But the summers teaching in the British Studies program we're beginning to open doors for me and the library. Yes, I, I want to ask you later about the, the Yates uh, Summer School in Sligo, but you, you did get to spend a, a whole year in London around that time, didn't you? Yes, I spent the 1974-75 academic year there with my young family on an NEH fellowship. For my British Studies seminar that summer, I invited Dame Helen Gardner the great Oxford scholar and close friend of T.S. Eliot, to engage the students in a discussion of his poems, and I took her to dinner for more Eliot talk afterwards. When she asked me about my frustrations and research, I replied that since Eliot's death in 1965, much of his uncollected and unpublished work was highly restricted or inaccessible, and that my letters to Mrs. Eliot went unanswered. On that note, she kindly offered to write a letter of introduction with a personal request to see me. I was eventually invited to the Elliott flat in Kensington for drinks and salmon snacks, a meeting uh, which I hope we can return, because Valerie Elliott played her own significant role in this story. In that same seminar, titled Modern Literature in a Sense of Place, I took the students on a weekend trip to Nottingham to visit the country of D.H. Lawrence. I had written to the director of the University of Nottingham's Lawrence Collection to request a visit, hoping to see a few related items in the usual glass cases. When we arrived, to my great surprise, we were shown into a large room, not with glass cases, but with numerous tables openly covered with manuscripts, letters, and other rare archival case uh, items. The students were free to browse among the tables and look at the various materials calling out to each other, 
oh my God, you've got to come see this letter. Or, no, you've got to come over here and look at this draft of the poem we're studying. And so on, for nearly two hours, in utter awe and amazement at the archival privilege afforded them. In their program evaluations, all exclaimed that it was the intellectual highlight of the summer for them. And it permanently influenced my own teaching philosophy and idea of what the archives could become. Mm. Now, um, speaking of teaching and the archives, uh, I know that the great biographer and literary scholar Richard Elman, the author of the biographers of W.B. Yeats and James Joyce, among others, played a, a really important role in your early career. Had he arrived at Emory by this time? Around then, in... Uh, in September 1976, Elman, the Goldsmiths professor of English at Oxford University, then working on his biography of Oscar Wilde, gave a lecture titled Oscar Wilde, A Late Victorian Love Affair before several hundred faculty and students in the tall auditorium of the Emory Law School. John Palms, the dean of Emory College, who supported and attended the lecture on short notice, came up afterwards to say, that was the best lecture I ever heard. Wouldn't it be great to have him at Emory? So while I was driving Elman to his lodging after the reception, I asked him if he ever considered returning to America. And he replied that it wasn't really possible, as his wife had suffered a crippling aneurysm that made them dependent on the British health system, as he could not find American insurance to cover her pre-existing condition. When I asked if he would consider returning if a good American university offered him such insurance, he said, I'd be on the next plane. I then called the dean at home that evening to say if he really would like to see Elman at Emory, it would happen if he could get him Blue Cross Blue Shield. <laughs> By good fortune, that insurance was arranged, and in the spring of 1978, Elman began coming to Emory during the Oxford long spring break for the next nine years, bringing a new lecture on modern writers each year, Beckett, Yeats, Joyce, Auden, and teaching a short course to overloaded classes. He was present that April for the inauguration and address of Pr President James T. Laney, going up afterwards to congratulate him and say that if, as he said, he wanted to build a great university, he had to build a great research library. Laney replied with alacrity to the charge, well, let's do it. <laughs> As an encouragement, in December 1978, Elman arranged to have his own substantial Yeats collection transferred to the Woodruff Library. Eureka! We now had a Yeats collection, and I had an editorial mentor in Elman, the editor of James Joyce's letters. Now, this was before the Woodruff Endowment, right? I imagine that brought about quite a significant change in fortunes. The big year, indeed the game-changing year for Emory and the Woodruff Library, came in 1979 with Robert Woodruff's magnificent gift of $105 million for university development, programs, professorships, scholarships. That spring... Elman informed Laney and the Woodruff librarians, the new director, Ted Johnson, and the wonderful curator, Morella Walker, that Lady Augusta Gregory's personal collection of W.B. Yeats's writings in her Cool Park Library would soon be up for a major two-part auction at Sotheby's in July and December. Laney, already a player in rare books and manuscripts, responded with great enthusiasm again. Well, go get it. <laughs> and get it, he did. And the lion's share of the Lady Gregory Yates collection, the cornerstone collection for building the future acquisitions in Irish, English, American, and Afro-American collections that we have today. At a celebratory meeting after the collection arrived in the library, I recounted the Nottingham experience and the student response to examining D.H. Lawrence's manuscripts and letters. The Yates Lady Gregory collection, I proposed, has come at such an incredible windfall to Emory. Could we not boldly consider making the teaching mission as important to us as the research mission? 
As we make the collection available to scholars and graduate students, could we not also bring our undergraduates early to the feast of archival research, welcoming their classes into special collections to share in the experience of seeing the manuscript materials of the creative process, of receiving hands-on instruction in the joy and skill of original search, however controversial the archive undergraduate combination might be related to some quarters? Well, the response was electric and unanimous. It was a Robert Woodruff moment. Damn the torpedoes, full speed ahead. <laughs> it really worked. Recent records of the Rose Library show that more undergraduates use the collections than faculty, graduate students, and visiting scholars combined. Their original research on class papers and honors theses has made many of them highly competitive recipients of Rhodes, Marshall, Fulbright, and other top graduate school fellowships. They leave us as colleagues in research, not beginners. And as the 70s moved toward an end, the two chairmen of the English department who had overseen the British Studies program departed by 1978 for other institutions, leaving the future of that great program in jeopardy. By good fortune, I was able to transfer the program to University College, one of the oldest and most prestigious uh, in Oxford, as director and for the next 20 years, it provided the opportunity to invite scores of English and Irish writers and scholars in a variety of fields to give readings, visit classes, mix with students at receptions and in the college bar, and to extend invitations for an Emory visit, hoping but never expecting that they might have an archive they wish to place. I'm sure the college bar was a uh, was a ripe location for such conversations, <laughs> <laughs> from opening to closing. <laughs> I know that um, I know that the Irish poet and the Nobel laureate Seamus Heaney has been a great friend to you uh, personally and very influential in your life and in the life of the library. Um, I wonder if you'd talk a little about when you first met him and how that relationship developed. I'll never forget it. On March 9th, 1981, Seamus Heaney, who had heard of the library's Yeats connection, came to give his first poetry reading at Emory, followed by a party for him that included President Laney's first two newly appointed Woodruff professors, Richard Elman and the classicist William Aerosmith, together with Emory undergraduate and graduate students. Heaney would later write about that event in his autobiographical dialogue, Stepping Stones, to recount how moved he was when an Emory undergraduate, John Simpson, blind from birth, chanted Yeats's poems for him on a replica of Yeats's psaltery. In July of the following year, I was teaching a class on modern English poets and their place of writing in our British Studies program. I hired a van and took the students to Thomas Hardy country in Dorsetshire, stopping first at Hardy's grave in the churchyard of St. Michael's. On a beautiful sunny morning, alone in the churchyard, the class began its graveside discussion of Hardy's life and poems with packed lunches to share. Soon came the creak of the iron entrance gate and the appearance of a lone distant figure whom I ignored in turning back to um, a poem until I saw the uplifted eyes of the students watching the person approach us. I was gobsmacked. It was Heaney. <laughs> Hello, fellow pilgrims, he said. I was with Richard Elman in Oxford last night, and he told me that I might find you here. I'm on my own hearty pilgrimage and thought I would join you if it wouldn't be an interruption. So for the next hour, Heaney shared in the picnic with the awestruck students, recited and discussed several of Hardy's poems from memory, and talked of Hardy's importance to him as a poet. He then bade us farewell, heading off to the cottage of Hardy's birthplace, leaving us all astonished by the serendipity of the chance encounter and the generosity of the poet on that magical day. In July of 1984, Heaney brought his wife and three children from Dublin to Oxford 
as guests of the British Studies Program for the first time, giving not only a reading of his poems, but conducting a poetry workshop for Emory students. He included his family in the outdoor uh, reception in a beautiful college garden to mingle with all the students. That evening, Richard Elman and his wife Mary hosted a dinner party for Heaney, my co-editor of the Yates Letters, John Kelly, myself, and our wives, an evening of camaraderie not only memorable in itself, but momentous for the future of the library and the university, as I hope to show. For the 1986-87 academic year, I received a visiting fellowship at Wolfson College, Oxford, to which Elman had transferred from New College. When I arrived in September, I noticed that his speech was slurred. He informed me at once that he was self-diagnosed with ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease. When the disease was confirmed, I wrote to inform President Laney of the prognosis and to suggest that he consider establishing a lecture series in Elman's name. Ah, so this, this was the beginning of the, um, the Elman lectures. Yes, uh, in February 1987, before Elman's death in May, Laney flew to Oxford to inform him that Emory would establish the Richard Elman Lectures in Modern Literature in recognition of his service to the university. When asked if he had in mind anyone whom he would like to inaugurate the lectures, he softly replied, Yes, Seamus. Seamus accepted over the phone, and on 13 April 1988, accompanied by his wife, Maury, on his 49th birthday, he inaugurated the Elman Lectures at Emory over four days with the first of three lectures and a poetry reading that packed the Glen Memorial Sanctuary. Heaney's lectures and many that followed were conducted with full Southern hospitality and festivities. A pig roast with a, with a margarita fountain, a mariachi band, dancing, a dean's dinner for faculty, a friends of the library dinner, a public book signing, a private press publication of a poem or story by the lecturer. <laughs> Such was the format, soon widely known. When a long-shot invitation to deliver the lectures was sent to the English novelist A.S. Byatt, she replied, I'll come if you do the pig. <laughs> how, can you turn, how could you turn down the pig in the margarita fountain? A synergy was beginning to develop between the lectures and the library. Heaney had recommended that we invite as the next Elman lecturer his friend, the poet laureate of England, Ted Hughes, to whom he wrote a personal letter of encouragement to accept. Hughes's commitments at the time prevented him, but he asked to be invited again at a later time and to stay in touch. In 1987, the library had acquired from the American poet W.S. Merwin and his wife Dido their 10-year correspondence with Hughes, which included typescripts of his poems. I had been teaching Hughes's poems and contemporary poetry courses since the mid-1970s, ordering for the library first editions of new volumes as they appeared and limited editions of poems from his sister Alwyn Hughes's private rainbow press. So Emory was on his radar for the future. It sounds like the collections at Emory that time were starting to appear on the radar everywhere. Yes. By now, the word was now well out on Emory's Irish collections. Within months after the Elman Lectures, Emory was offered a collection of the Irish poet Derek Mons papers by an Irish-American collector, which the director of special collections, Linda Matthews, accepted without hesitation recognizing the potential to build a collection in contemporary Irish literature. Derek did not know that we had a collection of his papers when he arrived to give his first poetry reading in 1991. When I suggested that we go up to special collections to see them, he was flabbergasted. What papers? Where did you get them? What did you pay for them? <laughs> Derek had in, hand, had in years past 
handed over batches of his papers to the collector as collateral for funds to pay school fees for his children. Gradually forgetting about the exchanges and debt, leading the collector to sell them in default. When the papers were brought out, he exclaimed after opening the first folder, There's that poem. I've been looking for it for years. It's not finished. <laughs> Shocking the librarians into near apoplexy as he removed papers from their folders for photocopying. But he was greatly relieved to know that the manuscripts were not lost, and he committed himself to sending his future manuscripts to the collection. In some instances, he was so in need of funds that he would send the manuscripts to us of a new volume before it was published. Steve Ennis now came into Emory as our manuscript librarian and shepherded the succeeding arrivals of Derek's papers and later became his biographer. Steve and I became partners in the hunt for archives as he became curator and then director of Marble. My role was over when we brought the poet or dealer to the table. I never participated in the financial negotiations and asked never to be informed of the amount, lest prospective poets press me like Derek for the information. <laughs> now, I know you've spent quite a few summers in Yeats's hometown in Sligo in the west of Ireland, lecturing at the Yeats International Summer School. I wonder if you can tell us about a, a visit to Ireland that was particularly important for you and your work with the library. Yeah. Each year at the Yates International Summer School in Sligo in the west of Ireland, the students were taken on a day trip to places related to Yeats's poems before going on to end the day at Kenny's bookshop in Galway to view a great treasure trove of Irish books and prints. I was on the faculty in 1988 and again in the summer of 1991. And when I informed the owner, Connor Kenny, that in the interim, Emory had acquired Mahon's papers, he asked, Would you believe that we have just received Michael Longley's archive? Go upstairs and have a look. With its very rich arrival of Longley's archive at Emory in 1992, we had scored two poets toward the trifecta of primary Belfast poets, Heaney, Mahon, Longley. There's a wonderful anecdote about Longley in a Dublin pub where a young man was loudly debating the relative standing of contemporary Irish poets. Longley reportedly banged his pint on the table, exclaiming, Now let's get this straight. Seamus is number one, Derek is number two, and I'm number three. Get in the drink like a good boy and shut your face. <laughs> more, more members of the Belfast group, poets who had been members of a writing workshop at Queen's University during the 60s and early 70s, directed at times by Heaney, were soon brought into the Emory fold in the mid to late 90s, including James Simmons, Karen Carson, Paul Muldoon, and Frank Ormsby poet and editor of The Honest Ulsterman, the most widely read literary journal of the time in Ireland. The files of the journal are in the Rose Library, together with a website of the Belfast Group's poetry drafts and correspondence, assembled by Ennis and constructed by Emory's digital technicians. The papers of Tom Paulin and of Heaney's former student Maeve McGuckian would soon arrive in course followed into the millennium by two generations of poets from Southern Ireland, Heaney's close friend Peter Fallon and the archives of his gallery press, Thomas Kinsella, Edna O'Brien, Eamon Grennan, Joan McBreen, and Rita Ann Higgins, among others, each archive of which brought a unique story with it. Now, you, uh, you promised that Valerie Elliott would become a, a big part of the story at some point, and I, I suspect she's um, due to make her return with uh, uh, some old granddad bourbon. Uh, you, do you want to return to her now and tell us how she came back into your life? Back to my first meeting with Valerie in the autumn of 1974 over old granddad and snacks. 
I hear that you're originally from Texas, he began. Tom and I visited the University of Texas in 1958 when he placed some of his papers there. He came back with a Stetson hat and a love of old granddad bourbon, which I have brought in for you. Drink up, she said, pouring liberally. (laughs) She had recently published the facsimile edition of The Wasteland and was editing the first volume of her husband's letters. She proceeded to test a would-be Elliot scholar with an exam-like barrage of questions about Elliot research and scholarship, the scholars that I respected or not, until she arrived at the overwhelming question. Professor Shuhard, what do you want? Why have you asked to see me? I told her that I wanted to see her husband's unpublished and highly restricted Clark lectures on metaphysical poetry housed unseen by scholars in the King's College Library in Cambridge. After a pause, she said, Well, I'll let you see them, (laughs) but you must never ask me to quote from them in any way. Gratefully, I spent almost a week reading them and taking notes before sending her a five-page handwritten letter about their importance, of, of how everything he had written earlier had come into them and how everything written afterwards came out of them. She did not reply. That is, not for 13 years. In September 1987, I found in my department mailbox a blue airmail letter postmarked London. Dear Professor Shuhart, I remember that you wrote me a thoughtful letter after reading my husband's Clark lectures. I am now writing to ask if you would like to edit them. I do not know what your present commitments are, apart from editing the Yates letters, but if you are willing and able to undertake this task, I should like it done as soon as conveniently possible. Yours very sincerely, Valerie Elliott. When I picked myself up from the floor after this knockdown, life-changing letter, I replied in the manner of Joyce's Molly to the effect of, yes, I will, yes. <laughs> to shorten the story, I, may, I made her my honorary co-editor, meeting with her for a few days each summer to discuss progress until it was published by Elliot's firm, Faber and Faber, in 1993 as the Varieties of Metaphysical Poetry, the first volume of Elliot's prose to appear since his death. Emory voted to bestow on her an honorary degree that spring in recognition of her broad achievements as a woman of letters and for her philanthropy in literature and the arts. During her visit, we went up to special collections to see a small exhibition of holdings and to inform her of our collecting goals. Before we went down, she looked at me and said, I think you have got to become a member of the Grolier Club of New York if you hope to realize your goals. It's the oldest bibliographical society in America with an international membership. It is the heart and soul of serious collectors, many of whom hold the greatest private collections in America. As a member... I will send a letter of nomination for you on my return to London. She was so right. <laughs> uh, do you do you recall any of those Grow Your Club meetings in particular? Of the many contacts with Grow Your Collectors who opened doors for acquiring important collections, the most significant began at the annual meeting and dinner of the club in January 1996. At the dinner... Members are randomly seated at tables of eight, where conversation starters inevitably begin with, what do you collect? A member at our table asked me to talk to them about the Emory collection of 20th century poetry for a few minutes, at the end of which he leaned over and said to me very definitely, you need to meet Grolier member Raymond Donowski. He holds the largest collection of 20th century poetry in private hands in a Swiss warehouse and is reportedly looking to place it in a worthy institution. Is he here, I asked? 
No. He moves among his residences in South Africa, London, and Norfolk, and seldom comes to the club. I jotted down his name and a phrase about the collection on my menu card and passed it on to Ennis on return. We learned that he grew up in the Bronx and attended Columbia's Burgess Carpenter Library, where he had an after-school job shelving books. Reportedly a voracious reader who read more books than he shelved, and where the collecting passion was deeply influenced by being allowed to visit and hold rare books and manuscripts. I first met him in the summer of 1996 in his modest London flat, where we talked about collecting. He said that his own collection would have to be gifted, for no university could afford it and that a successful university would have to convince him of its worthiness of receiving it and agree to make additions, hold exhibitions, poetry readings, and so forth to keep it a living collection. Over the next eight years, Ennis and I would meet him together and separately in London, Oxford, New York, Atlanta, and finally in Geneva, uh, which I'll come back to. Um, is this when Ted Hughes uh, placed his papers at Emory? Was that a connection with the Grolier Club that precipitated that? No, not this one. In 1996, Ted Hughes learned that he was suffering from cancer and wished to take steps to place his archive in a research library discreetly, but not if he could help it in England, where he felt oppressed by the constant criticism of his relationship with his late wife, Sylvia Plath, who had committed suicide in 1963. He sought the advice and assistance of his friend Roy Davids, head of Sotheby's book department, to mastermind the sale as his agent. When Davids asked Hughes if he knew an institution in America that favored and supported his work, Emory came up. Davids contacted Emory's Steve Ennis, who flew to England to meet with Hughes in 1996, examining the collection at his home, Court Green in Devon, and returning in 1997 to seal the purchase for shipment and arrival. I wrote a congratulatory letter and again invited him to come give the Elman Lectures and to take him, an avid fisherman and an environmentalist outdoorsman, on a camping and fishing trip to the Okefenokee Swamp during alligator mating season when they roar so loudly that the earth shakes. <laughs> Hughes wrote to me on 7 April. Dear Ron, yes, handing my papers over to the Woodruff Library has been a great event for me. I always imagined that releasing all those ancestral bones would be a traumatic experience. Not at all. I feel positively happy to think of them there. You honor me greatly with the invitation to do the Elman Lectures. Naturally, I would greatly enjoy being able to do them and do them justice. But may I say, after three years away from any real work of my own, anesthetizing myself with translations mainly, I'm beginning to feel touches of desperation. And the thought of launching into discursive prose, well, at the moment it's just about unthinkable. Perhaps another year in the future you might ask me again, with the pig in the pit, and the fishing, and alligators, maybe teasing off a shoulder a collop of the pig, roasting for some other Elman laureate. <laughs> Hughes was working on his final volume of poetry, Birthday Letters, which explores his complex relationship with Sylvia Plath, published in January 1998. That summer, Steve, my wife Keith, and I had him, had him alone to dinner in London with a discussion of his memory techniques and his recent translations of Racine, Aeschylus, Euripides, and others. He then sent me a ticket for the premiere production of his translation of Racine's Phaedra with the actress Diana Rigg at the Malvern Festival in August, hoping to meet Heaney and I there but he was too ill to come 
and his death came soon on 28 October. I wanted to ask you um, about your connection to one collection in particular. You mentioned the Lady Gregory papers way back when we started talking. I wanted to ask you about the trove of letters between W.B. Yeats and the woman whom he adored for so much of his life, but who never acquiesced to his proposals, Maud Gunn. I know that was a an incredible find. How did that magnificent collection end up at Emory? Well, I spent the academic year of 2000-2001 in Dublin as a visiting fellow at both Trinity College Dublin and Queen's University Belfast, continuing to make connections with Irish poets north and south. But the most fascinating news came from a dealer who had heard that Maud Gunn's granddaughter, Anna McBride White, was interested in selling her archive of the Maud Gunn Yates correspondence. Steve was in Dublin at the time, and we quickly arranged a meeting at her home in Dublin. She laid out on a table a huge pile of the letters for us to examine. And when she went off to make tea, I told Steve that we could not leave this historic correspondence without informing her that Emery would make a substantial offer. Without authority, I knew, but I was willing to take out a second mortgage on my house that the university bought. (laughs) She she was very interested, but said she needed to discuss it with her family, with which we fully agreed. Alas, not unexpectedly, she soon informed us that her family believed the letters should go to the National Library of Ireland. In disappointment, we said we fully understood— and thought it the right decision for the nation. But not long after, we heard from a dealer that the National Library could not make her an offer for the foreseeable future, having exhausted its acquisition budget on purchasing the manuscript of the Circe chapter of Joyce's Ulysses. (laughs) Wow. Serendipity to the rescue again. As she wrote to me on 9 March, and let me read from her letter, the National Library have decided not to buy the Gunn-Yates letters after all, so the offer is again open to Emory University. Thank you for coming to look at the letters at such short notice last year and for bringing Mr. Ennis to whom I have also written. I have added a recently discovered letter from 1898 where Maud Gunn gives her reasons for not marrying Yates. (laughs) I have also added about three letters from Yates, one to Mrs. Shakespeare around 1903, also a letter from Lady Gregory to Yates in December 1903. I hope these few extras in the package may make up a little for the delay in coming to grips with the possible sale. The collection was delivered by the London dealer, Edward Maggs, later in 2002. Mm. And am I correct that this was around the time of the the big Grolier exhibition as well, right? Yes. Um, In in 1999, Steve and I had co-authored an article titled The Growth of Emory's Modern Irish Collection for publication in the Gazette of the Grolier Club. As a forerunner for the launch of a major uh, exhibition of Irish literature at the club from 15 May to 27 July 2002, organized with the assistance of the Irish collector and Grolier member Jim O'Halloran, made up mainly of Woodruff holdings, with a few rarities borrowed directly from some of the poets, and uh, a few from other institutional collections. The first major exhibition of Irish literature in 36 years, it was well covered in the press, including the New York Times. The title of the catalog was taken from Seamus Heaney's poem, Digging, to set the darkness echoing, an exhibition of Irish literature, 1950 to 2000, published by the Grolier Club the exhibition placed the Emory Collection on a new level of international stature and visibility. But Heaney returned to Emory in May 2003 on the invitation of President Chase to give the commencement address. 
in which he turned at one point to recognize Emory's commitment to the study and teaching of Irish literature. That commitment, he said, gives extra significance to my own return to Emory this morning, as does the fact that Emory houses one of the greatest of literary archives. And I am glad to say that in their special collections, Irish poets and poetry have enjoyed a privileged status. He had given no indication of the direction in which his mind was moving in relation to his own papers. But when he returned on 23 September to give a reading in honor of President Chase's retirement, he stated that, No visit I've ever made here has been without great personal significance. All in all, Emory has proved itself a home away from home for many writers. We were then all stunned by his surprise announcement. When I was here this spring for commencement, I came to the decision that I should now lodge a substantial portion of my literary archive in the Woodruff Library, including the correspondence from many of the poets already represented in special collections. So I am pleased to say that these letters are now here, and that even as President Chase is now departing, as long as my papers stay here, they will be a memorial to the work he has done to extend the university's resources and strengthen its purpose. The Heaney Mahan Longley trifecta was complete at last. <laughs> Heaney's number one, Mahan's number two, and Longley is number three. <laughs> Get in the drink and shut your face. <laughs> 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 Heaney gave his final reading for the library's annual Twelfth Night, a fundraising celebration of the collections on March 1st, 2013, before giving a public reading the next day to an audience of 1,200 in the Glen Memorial Sanctuary. The world was to be shocked into grief and mourning over news of his sudden death five months later on August 30 shortly after texting his famous last words to Mari, Noli to Mary, don't be afraid. Ron, I was a graduate student at Emory. Uh, in fact, when the Donowski collection started to arrive in great wooden crates that were wheeled in and stacked in a fenced-off area of the library's bottom floor, you said you were going to go back and tell us about visiting Raymond Donowski's uh, basketball court-sized warehouse in Geneva. Do you want to do that now? In December 2003, Steve and I met Raymond Donowski in Geneva to visit the collection, which was stored in Geneva Freeport, a vast climate-controlled warehouse of fine art storage vaults, half the size of a basketball court. Raymond described to us his snowflake vision of building a collection of every first edition of poetry published in English in the 20th century, calling on an assemblage of multinational book dealers to acquire and ship to Geneva the multitude of rare books, manuscripts, periodicals, broadsides, recordings, and author libraries, even bronze busts of Auden, Beckett, Haney, and others. We looked upon the floor-to-ceiling boxes and tea chests and began crawling over them and opening them to discover the rarest and most prized volumes of 20th century literature. The first edition of Eliot's Proofrock and Other Observations, inscribed to Emily Hale, and that of Joyce's Ulysses. I said to Steve, as we held these rarities in our hands, I think we're in the right place. <laughs> Soon the gift of the collection came down to Emory and Virginia. He visited Emory before going to Virginia, re returning to say that they had acquired some outstanding collections in recent years, but had not added any new books or materials to them and that when he discovered that the collections were not accessible for teaching undergraduates, he said in announcing his decision, 
I thought immediately of those friends at Columbia's Burgess Carpenter Library, trusting me as an undergraduate in their intellectual world, letting me experience the pleasure of finding an as-new copy of a rare book and holding it in my hands. I voted for Emory right then. It took four large sea freight containers to transfer the 75,000 books and a massive amount and variety of manuscripts and other archival materials for arrival in 2004. We were to enjoy the generous company of Raymond and his family during his returns to meet with the advisory committee of the collection on its editions, exhibitions, fellowships, and poetry readings until his passing on February 2nd, 2018, at his home in Stellenbosch, South Africa. Hmm. Ron, I, I think you probably remember that I, I was, uh, I was, I had only been on the job three or four days when I opened a box in that collection and pulled out from among the one and two dollar books that were surrounding it, a, a case that held the 1855 edition of Walt Whitman's Leaves of Grass. Oh, yeah. I, I held that book in my hands, glowing. <laughs> now, uh, it was around that same time, I remember, um, that I, I got to meet Sa Sa uh, Salman Rushdie at, uh, at uh, the President's Mansion at Lullwater, dancing around at one of the great parties there. Um, that's, that's, uh, that's, that's accurate, right? It was around that time? Yes, and a smooth dancer he was. In the fall of 2004, Salman Rushdie came to Emory for a new series of Elman lectures. I met him at the Atlanta airport, and on the way in to Emory, I asked him if he had special places he would like to see on his visit. He said he had heard of our special collections library and would like to visit that, which was quickly arranged. The new president of the university, James Wagner, an engineer by training and, and administrative experience, generously agreed with his wife to host the reception after the first lecture at Lullwater. When I informed him that I would introduce Rushdie to him on arrival from the lecture, he asked me what he should say to him. I said, ask him why he doesn't place his papers at Emory. Really? <laughs> yes, really. <laughs> After a few minutes of greetings and small travel talk, Wagner popped the question, why don't you place your papers at Emory? To which Rushdie replied, why don't you ask me? <laughs> well, we would like for you to place your papers at Emory. Successful meetings and negotiations followed. When the British press got wind of the transaction, Rushdie was asked, why, as a U.K. citizen, he placed his papers at an American institution like Emory. And he reportedly replied, because they asked me, <laughs> which a British institution would never have done. He became our new Richard Ellman, returning to Emory as distinguished writer-in-residence every spring for several years to lecture, visit classes, and work on his memoir with his papers in our keeping. The born digital part of his archive included the hard drives of all his previous PCs and laptops, from which Emory technicians recovered early drafts of his work, now accessible on monitors in the Rose Library. I know our time is short, Ron. So much to talk about. Um, are, there, are there other specific collections or archives that, that you'd like to talk about now before we wrap things up? Yes, I'd, I'd like to conclude with an account of another outstanding archive, the unlikely acquisition in 2009 of the Julius M. Cruz collection of T.S. Eliot comprised of over 3,000 volumes, manuscripts, letters, and photographs related to the work of T.S. Eliot. Dr. Cruz, for nearly 50 years a distinguished pathologist at the University of Mississippi Medical School and a lifelong collector of Eliot's work, 
originally donated the collection to the St. Mark's Library of the General Theological Seminary of the Episcopal Church in New York City for use by seminarians. When I first heard about the collection, I went to St. Mark's to examine it for rare materials that would assist the editing and annotating of the eight-volume edition of Eliot's Complete Prose. I then wrote to him to express my admiration of the collection and its great research value. Some months later, he wrote to say that St. Mark's Library was planning a major renovation that would require the storage of the collection for two or three years, and that he would be pleased to have it transferred to the Emory Library for my editorial use rather than allow it to go into storage. The transfer was happily arranged, but when the collection arrived, it was discovered to be infested with mites and had to be quarantined and treated for several months. He was so upset by the news of its neglect at St. Mark's that he withdrew the collection for permanent placement at Emory. Mm. In such bizarre ways does serendipity operate, though we know that we must first create the conditions for serendipity to occur before it can happen unexpectedly. Dr. Cruz subsequently came to Emory to see the restored collection in its pride of place and use before he passed away in 2018. Hmm. So by, by way of concluding, Ron, and reflecting on these stories and lessons, what, in your view, does it take to build and maintain a successful research library? Uh, I think that building a major research library requires the creation of a team of librarians, administrators, trustees, and faculty members with a strong common interest in realizing the collection's goals over many years. It requires actively engaging with the culture of collecting, with collectors, dealers, and bibliophile societies and making the library's goals known to them so that they respond with unforeseen opportunities and offers. It also requires the university to become a generous and imaginative host in creating programs and events that keep creative people coming back, giving writers an intellectual creative home and making them want to place their papers here. And it requires the university to share and celebrate the fruits of the collection process with its community of students, alumni, and donors who come to feel the energy and excitement of anticipating new acquisitions. And I think that Emory has done a great job in creating such a collecting environment over the past 40 years. Just think of what the next 40 years might bring. <laughs> well, we'll be sure to raise a glass in that time and celebrate the 40-year anniversary of this interview. It's, it's, been a great, it's been a great pleasure talking with you today, Ron. Thank you, Tony. It's been very enjoyable being with you again on this occasion. Community Conversations is produced by Lolita Rowe, Nick Twimlow, and Jacob Chisenhall, who also edits the show. Music by Sister Sai. We are grateful for the continued support provided by our colleagues at the Rose Library, including our director, Jennifer Gunter King. Special thanks to Ron Schuhard and Anthony Kuda and the Emory Center for Digital Scholarship. For more information about Rose Library and our other podcast series, please visit us at rose.library.emory.edu. And follow us on Rose Library's Instagram and other social media. And please, share with your friends. You can find Community Conversations on all your favorite podcast feeds.